Hi, this is Ben Lowe with Back to the Bible Canada and Truth in Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. Uh, today we're going to take on a variety of different questions from our listeners, and Dr. John Newfeld and I will have the conversation about those. But in the meantime, I just want you to know if you want to listen to or watch uh, Truth in Life Today every week, you can go to our podcast on iTunes, Truth in Life Today, our YouTube channel, or just go to backtothebible.ca and watch online, and there you can also add your questions to a future episode. So let's begin today with Dr. John Newfeld. Welcome. That's good to be here. Uh, we continue our series on Truth and Life today with just a variety of different questions, because I think we have to do this every once in a while, because uh, the questions can be very unique. Uh, so let's start off with an easy one. <laughs> Not really. We're going to be talking about suffering. Yeah. And now, in some respects, uh, you know, we've both uh, seen or experienced people who have suffered in our lives. Uh, my wife has a chronic illness, and, yeah. and she has suffered over her life. And, and your wife is a nurse, so she's seen uh, much uh, and many people suffering chronically. Um, but what would you say the gospel says about suffering, uh, particularly for those that maybe haven't been healed of their suffering? Um, I think what we need to do is encourage people in their suffering, encourage them in their suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, So we don't want to discourage them, and we want to make sure that they're not saying, where is God in this? Because God has already promised in Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to us on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So Scripture sees suffering as a gracious gift that's been given by God. Now, how can that be, right? Mm-hmm. And we might ask that. But, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, where it says, In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while. It says, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there is this testing of our faith in which all the dross just drips away. And I think suffering has a way of doing that. I think it disconnects us from looking at this world as the source of human pleasure. Uh, Eventually, we begin to recognize, as C.S. Lewis says, there are either heavenly pleasures or there are no pleasures at all. Earth, he said, has no uh, pleasure to give us. Mm. And suffering, I think, does tell us that. And so it fixes our eyes on that which lies before us and not that which we are now living in right now. So you see people, and often they go through these uh, hills and valleys, Uh, whether it be physical suffering, whether it be emotional suffering, uh, or whether they just uh, uh, are are going through a a part of their lives where they're suffering and they continue to plea with God about their suffering, but they don't seem to get a response. What do we say to those people? You know, we think about Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians, that three times he pleaded with the Lord to take it away. Yeah. And of course, the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. My, you my, My power is perfected in suffering. And I don't know, but there's something about displaying our weakness that God wants in us so that we might rely more on Him. And I know that's hard for us, but I think in the end, because Paul will have called uh, suffering our momentary light afflictions. So I guess he, he compares our momentary light afflictions to the eternal weight of glory. So glory is like this heavy thing, and afflictions are like this light thing. And I think in the light of eternity, we will see how God has used our sufferings to prepare us for the eternal good that he has for us. And looking back at our sufferings, we're going to say, in the light of the weight of the glory of heaven, this was but a small thing to undergo so that I might inherit this. 
Yeah. I think that's what the Bible has. And I think in the midst of our suffering, we're going to have to cling to that. Ben, if I might add something else as well, there is something about suffering in, that, that reflects what the Bible calls union with Christ, that we are united with him, says Paul, in his suffering. sufferings. Um, and because our Lord suffered, and so he allows us to enter into his experience of suffering so that the cross never seems to us like an, like an abstraction. But we, we can imagine the suffering because we've gone through it ourselves. You know, so Hebrews says that, you know, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so if we are not being disciplined, that is, if we're not going through a season of suffering ever, then we ought to take from that that we're probably not the children of God because he wants to discipline, shape our character through this tool that he has for us. The key, because I think we're going to go through hills and valleys, yeah. uh, is to always try, strive to come back to our perspective of, of the temporal versus the eternal. Yeah, I would say that, and also always saying, Lord, thank you that you are showing me what the sufferings of Jesus were like. Right. And if we can do that, if we can remember that, if, if we can't, let's pray that God would give us a friend who loves us dearly and at the appropriate moment, not the inappropriate moment, but the appropriate moment, help to remind us of the honor of identifying with Jesus. Yeah. And I guess it's it's important to say that uh, uh, God is not lost on your suffering. Like yeah. he knows your suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say not only does he know it, and, and I know this is going to seem you know controversial to some, but I think it's where the Bible leads us, that he has designed them for us. Okay. I think for the unbeliever, it means something else. Suffering is an indication of eternal suffering. You ought to flee uh, to go to Christ, but we've been freed from that. And so suffering for us is God's gracious tool in which he is shaping us for an eternity of joy. So I guess in essence, uh, there's some relief in essence to know that our suffering is purposeful. Yeah, there is not one thing that the believer will encounter in this world that God has not designed for their, not their short-term, but yeah. their long-term good. Yeah. And so God is designing to maximize our joy in eternity. Yeah. That's the idea. This is a little bit of an aside, but I think it, it moves naturally into this question of what about those who would choose to stop their suffering, would mm -hmm. choose euthanasia yeah. or things of that nature? Uh, what are they missing? I'm reminded of what Moses said at the end of Deuteronomy. You know, he is appealing to Israel to remain faithful to the Lord. And, and he says, see, I have set before you this day life and death, blessing and cursing. So life is connected with blessing and death is connected with cursing. Now, I know that there is an appointment with death and that even in death, I would say for the believer that we identify with Christ. But Christ was put to death. Um, he did not commit suicide. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that for a believer, suffering is not minimized and it's not random. It has great meaning. And life itself is a gift given by God. And so we don't denigrate the gift of God. Mm -hmm. And if God, by giving us this gift, has prepared for us a very dark valley to walk through. And uh, I, I'm, I want to say this with a tear in my eye, but if he's given us a dark valley to walk through then we ought to walk through it holding the hand of our Savior, believing every ounce of us that he is doing this for our eternal well-being. Yeah. Do you think that's one of the reasons, though, we're not to sort of walk in our faith in isolation, uh, but the, why the fellowship of believers can be so important? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting because not only do we personally suffer, we walk with people as we are in fellowship with people, right? Yeah. We walk with people who suffer, and we watch them suffer, and it sometimes deeply wounds our own heart because, I mean, I know that in terms of my marriage, I would far gladly suffer myself than to watch my wife or my children suffer. Sure. Um, and yet sometimes we are called upon to watch people that we love dearly, maybe in the you know, Church of Jesus Christ, and, and we watch them go through this long valley, and we walk with them, and we deeply identify with them. And, and in that way, I think what's happening is that God is calling us to incarnationalize our faith. You know, we become the mercy agent of Jesus into their lives. And we're going to say to the suffering, we're not going to leave you alone in this. Yeah. 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 Uh, thanks, wow. John. That's a tough one. It is. Uh, let's move to another issue. And it's an issue that comes up uh, or a subject that comes up relatively regularly. And it's the whole perspective of baptism. Yeah and styles of baptism, yeah. and the significance of baptism, and even the question, should all believers be baptized? Sure. I'll just leave all that to you, <laughs> and you can unfold it as you yeah, will. Yeah, I, I mean, we'll start at the beginning, and that is, should believers be baptized? So on the day of Pentecost, yeah. um, you know, repent and believe, and then you'll be baptized. And so baptism was the defining mark on a believer's life. Yeah. I mean, it's still to this day, all over the world, you can even have in persecuted countries, people confessing Christ and nothing gets done. But once they're baptized, mm-hmm. that's the mark. And suddenly they say, you know, this kind of become official, kind of like a marriage document. Sure. So um, I think that, uh, you know, Christ has given us this to publicly identify with him and uh, also to publicly make our statement before the watching world that we belong to Christ. Yeah. Now, the meaning of baptism, I think Romans 6 is the place to go. Buried with Christ in baptism and raised to newness of life. So baptism is a symbol in which full identification with Christ in his death. I identify with Christ in his death. I'm united with him in his death. Mm -hmm. And I'm also united with him in his resurrection. I think baptism beautifully portrays that. Now, the question that's asked, and I heard that, and it's the controversial one, and that's the the question of, you know, I mean, what do we make of, you know, believer's baptism and infant baptism? And and I think we know that we have uh, people who watch us who are on both sides of that fence. Sure. And uh, I'm going to come clearly on the side of believer's baptism. But having said that, um, I don't know if you know this about me, Ben, but my mom uh, was raised as a Lutheran, and she married my dad. And uh, submitted to my dad, but never submitted to baptism mm. because she had been baptized as an infant until the day of her death. She, well, not quite. She had Alzheimer's, but close to the date of her death, she'd have given you an argument for infant baptism. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in that home of hearing both sides of, of, that, um, of that story. So I know that those who argue for infant baptism will argue from the household baptisms that one finds in the book of Acts. So in Acts 16, you have the Philippian jailer. And then uh, he was baptized after his conversion. Uh, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. So right. that baptism is not only the Philippian jailer, but of his household. And so therefore, the arguers for infant baptism will say, it seems to us, therefore, that the household must have included little infants. Okay. And so they'll argue that way. And I would respond by that and say, no, the text says, you believe and be baptized, and your household believe and be baptized. That's how it should be read. Mm-hmm. And so I think baptism is offered to all who believe, but that's where the argument is. Okay. Um, I'm going to say that the problem arose with second-generation Christianity. First-generation is always simple. Someone you know, comes to Christ at, a, at whatever age they are, gloriously saved, and we baptize them. 
Now comes the next generation, and regardless of which side of the fence you're on, if you're on infant baptism side or believer's baptism side, here's the problem. You get people whose kids come to faith in Christ when they're five. Mm -hmm. Should you baptize them then? I know of people who will argue on both sides of that one. And so they get to be 12, and then they get to be 16. Now they get to be 25, and they still haven't been baptized. So, you know, it's that second generation that constantly befuddles the church. So, you know, my sense of the thing is whenever anyone can accurately state why it is that they know their sins are forgiven and what faith in Jesus actually means, whenever they can articulate that and can express a faith that's not their parents' faith but their own, mm -hmm. then one ought to baptize them. Uh, so that, that would be my sense. So when you can articulate that, you stand for Christ, get baptized immediately. That's, that would be my, my argument for that. Good, good. Yeah. How about the difference, or is there a difference between the uh, Holy Spirit and water baptisms? Yeah, because, uh, you know, you get First uh, uh, Corinthians 12, by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say that baptism is the symbol for the identifier of the Christian faith, or I, I could have said it's the, the initiation into the Christian faith. Okay. So if it's the initiation of the Christian faith, then, then the Holy Spirit coming upon the life of the believer is the initiation into the life of Christ. So the Holy Spirit testifies to Christ. So it would seem to me um, that the first event, of course, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then the baptism of water is this public identifier where what the Holy Spirit does when he baptizes us is an you know, intimate inner experience okay. and that the water baptism is the outer reflection of that reality. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit would come upon conversion. Yes. Whenever that might be. Yes. And the baptism of water, in essence, comes as, as my confirmation or, yep. or, or my representation yep. of what I've done. Yeah. 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 Good, good. Thanks, John. Now, just let's stay on the uh, subject of the Holy Spirit for okay. a minute. Yep. Um, what is the difference as we talk about the Holy Spirit as being both spirit and person? Uh, well, let's talk about the Holy Spirit as a person, because as you, we, we both know, mm -hmm. uh, there are those, I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses would be one group that would argue that the Holy Spirit is just the power of God. And so they would deny the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Now, we also know that complicating the matter is that the Greek word pneuma uh, is a neuter noun. Now, you know, for those of us who only speak English, I mean, our nouns are not masculine, feminine, or neuter, but most languages in the world actually have a gender attached to nouns. And the genders are often mixed up. I, I know that, for instance, in German, a girl is a neuter noun. So I don't know why that is. It just is, right? So when you learn a language, you just attach you know, those gender references to, to things. And pneuma is a neuter noun. And here's where it gets really fascinating. In John 14, 26, in John 15, 26, and I've got the other reference here as well, somewhere, yes, in John 16, 3 and 4. In those three references, John, referring to the Holy Spirit, the pneuma, attaches a masculine pronoun mm. to the neuter noun. So grammatically, that's incorrect. But theologically, that's just bang on. And John has to break the rules of Greek grammar to make the point. He's speaking about a person. And uh, that's, you know, it's just very clear when one reads that in the original languages. He's done something unique here. Okay. Um, so I would also say that, you know, you have all sorts of activities of the Holy Spirit that you find in the Bible. You know, the Holy Spirit teaches people things. Now, a power can't do that. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. 
uh, you know, in Romans chapter 8. So he's actually praying for us. A power can't pray for us. So all those personal aspects are found of the Holy Spirit throughout the Scripture. But then also you have a number of Scripture passages which equate the Holy Spirit with, with God. So, for instance, when Jesus speaks about being born of the Spirit, uh, John records that in John chapter 3. And then later when he discusses that in 1 John, he says it's called being born of God. So, or Acts chapter, uh, I can't remember, 5, uh, the Ananias and Sapphira, Peter says, you have sinned against the Holy Spirit. And he said, um, you have sinned against God. So in the same passage, the Holy Spirit is called God. So over and over again, we have references to the Holy Spirit being God. So we don't have a power here. Mm-hmm. We have a real person who is, in fact, God the Spirit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay, we're going to move on to a different uh, topic that comes up. Uh, the uh, topic of demon possession. Ah, yes. Yeah. And uh, one specific question was asked, is it, is it possible for a believer mm-hmm. to be p- possessed by a demon? You know, Colossians tells us that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. Um, we also have a numerous other passages like that, which speak of conversion precisely in those terms. We are also told, because we just talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. So that the Holy Spirit enters into us, and we are fully belonging to God. We are His possession. So it seems, and we could talk about a number of other Scripture verses, but it seems so highly unlikely to me that the Scripture has any place in which there could be both inhabitation of a demon and the Holy Spirit inside the same individual. Okay. However, having said that, so in Ephesians where Paul says, you know, uh, that we are to deal with our anger and not give a foothold to the devil. So it does seem like that there are weaknesses that we can display, you know, uh, anger that we don't check, unforgiveness, all these other things that bitterness that we allow to grow in our lives. And when that happens, we give place for a weakness in which the devil will always tempt us. So that weakness now exists, and the devil knows how exactly to go to mm-hmm. that. And so unless we learn to put all of these sins under the blood of Christ, repent of them, you know, and seek the Lord's healing in them, we will always be vulnerable to satanic attacks. So we need to strengthen ourselves, and I think that's what spiritual warfare is. You learn to strengthen yourself through obedience to Christ so that the evil one no longer has access as he had in the past. I think yeah. that's how the Bible speaks. So the sense wouldn't be then that the individual is possessed by a demon, but rather we're allowing them to take advantage of those areas that we yeah. are weak in? Yeah, and you know, I know that there are all sorts of people that will take issue with what I've just said because yeah. you know, they come from you know, countries in the world where they say, you know, we've watched believers exhibit the most bizarre behavior, okay. and uh, it looks like demon possession to me. Yeah. And then somebody will cast out the demon, the person's in their right mind, and they'll say, what do you make of that experience? So I would respond in two ways. First is, yeah, I don't deny that that experience happens, but only the Scripture can help me interpret what that experience means. So maybe we shouldn't run there right away. There are a number of possibilities. One is, I mean, the Scripture over and over speaks about you know, false conversions, so it's possible for an individual to believe that they have been converted, but they've never escaped from the love of darkness into the arms of Jesus. And so they're kind of like Simon the sorcerer, you know, who seems to fit into the people of God, or as John says, you know, they went out from us, but they were never part of us. 
So that's possible. And I think we need to develop a theology of conversion that's much more robust than we've had in the past. Um, So that would be one thing that I would say. And then also I would say some people are very vulnerable to suggestion. Mm. And so I'm not arguing their demons aren't involved, but there's a psychology that's involved as well. And so they have not yet been trained to put on the full armor of God. And so they're very vulnerable to satanic attack and then begin to you know, manifest this kind of bizarre behavior. So those are also possible you know, descriptors of what we're seeing. You know, whenever we talk, whenever we get together and have uh, these conversations, I'm just reminded over and over and over again, regardless of the subject, it really comes back to our understanding of God through the study of His Word. Yeah. See, when we disconnect ourselves from that thing called Scripture, mm-hmm. you know, when, when we, we are building our theology, starting in the, you know, get your nose in the book and, and think about what it says and, and understand that, start there. And once you do, everything else will begin to fall in line. So I won't deny the bizarre behavior that others have had. Yeah. I will not deny it because I clearly see it. So now the only question we have to ask is, what does it mean? And you're right, Ben, the only place to go, go to the Scripture and let Scripture inform you. I can't find a place in Scripture where a believer is indwelt by a demon. Okay. I, I, I find lots of places where Jesus casts out demons and the person's in the right mind, and conversion happens. Paul has the same thing. You know, that the slave girl that would follow him around and say, these men are servants of the Most High God. He cast the demon out of her. She's in her right mind. Now is the time for conversion. Yeah. So uh, that seems to me the, the Bible pattern, and maybe we should just accept that pattern. Yeah. And I think that's an important point. I think the point you're making is, you know, we have to test everything yeah. through Scripture. John, thanks so much again for uh, our opportunity to be together today. I hope we've answered some of the questions our our listeners and our viewers are are asking, and we look forward to doing even more uh, next time right here on Truth and Life Today. We hope you're enjoying the new Truth and Life Today show with Dr. John Newfeld. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode each week. But we want you to be involved in the show. To submit your own personal questions to Dr. John, you can email us at info at backtothebible.ca or find us on Facebook by searching Truth and Life Today.